Hello, and welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Peter Bell, and we are on Catechism Thursday, number 19. And before you continue listening to this episode, go back to, if you have not yet listened to, Monday's episode with Dr. John Payne of the Gospel Reformation Network, and also pastor of Christ Church Presbyterian, PCA Church, in South Carolina, he talked about reformed worship, what it is, how we pursue it, and how it's different than kind of general evangelical worship. So listen to that real quick if you haven't yet, and then we'll come right back to this episode. So we are covering question answers 50 to 52. We'll start off with question answer 50. Question, why is it added and sits at the right hand of God, referring to Christ. Answer. Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. And here's Osinus's exposition of question answer 50. This differs from the ascension into heaven article in the creed, in the, follow, in the three following particulars. First, it was for this reason that Christ ascended into heaven, that he might sit at the right hand of God. Second, Christ sits forever at the right hand of the Father, but he ascended only once into heaven. Third, the, the angels ascend, and we also shall ascend into heaven, but neither they nor we shall sit at the right hand of the Father. And then considering the right hand of God, we will also consider these four questions. What, are the, what the right hand of God signifies in the scriptures? What it is to sit at the right hand of God? Whether Christ has always sat at God's right hand? And what are the fruits of his sitting at the right hand of the Father. So for the first question, what the right hand of God signifies in the scriptures? Ursinus says, first, supreme power and virtue or omnipotence of God, and secondly, supreme dignity and glory or majesty. Second, what is it to sit at the right hand of God? And he says, primarily, it is to be a person equal to God in power and glory. It is a phrase borrowed from the custom of kings and monarchs who place whom they trust and honor for certain, certain departments of the government. And so Christ's glory at the right hand consists in these four things. It consists in the perfection of his divine nature, or in the equality of the word with the Father, think John 1, which he did not then receive, but always had. It also consists in the perfection and exaltation of the human nature of Christ, which consists in the personal union of the human nature with the word, and in the excellency of gifts being far greater than angels or men. It consists in the perfection and excellence of the office of mediator in his prophetical, priestly, 
and kingly duties as glorified head of the church, executing in heaven in his human nature. A human being is sitting at the right hand of the Father, fully divine and fully man. It also consists, lastly, in the perfection of honor, reverence, and worship, which angels and men ascribe to Christ equal with that of the Father. This glory is to have the same and equal power with the Father. And so third, has Christ always sat at the right hand of God? And Rosina says, Christ has always sat at the right hand of the Father as respects his Godhead. Think him in the Trinitarian Council, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It also, Christ was always at the right hand of God according to his divinity. He shares in the same divine essence from eternity past into eternity future as a spirit in the Father. And the same can be said of the Godhead of Christ from the fact that he has executed the office of mediator from the very beginning of the world. And then we will return to question four of this exposition in the next question. Question 51. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? Answer. First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. The Rosinus says, and we're going to return to question four that I just stated that we will return to. Rosinus asks, what are the fruits of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father? The fruits comprehend all the benefits of the kingdom and priesthood of Christ glorified. They are such as following. He intercedes for us. He gathers, governs, and preserves the church by his word and spirit. He defends the church against all her enemies. He rejects and destroys the enemies of the church. And in the glorification of the church, the removal of all the infirmities to which it is here subject. And so Rosinus says the benefits of the kingdom of Christ glorified are that he rules us through the ministry of his word and spirit, that he preserves his ministry, gives his church resting places, makes his word effectual in the conversion of the elects, raises them at length from the dead, delivers them from all their infirmities, glorifies them, wipes all tears from their eyes, places them upon his throne, and makes them kings and priests unto his father. The fruit of the priesthood of Christ glorified is that he appears and intercedes prevailingly. That means he never ceases to intercede for us in heaven. So that the father does not refuse us anything on account of the virtue and force of his intercession. So what is the application we make of this article relating to Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. I believe that Christ, possessed of supreme and divine majesty, 
intercedes for me and all the elect, and that he applies to us his sacrifice, that the Father, by and for his sake, may bestow upon me eternal life. Question answer 52, last one. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? Answer, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. So this exposition is a little bit longer, but stick with me. Ursina says the subjects which specially claim our attention in connection with the final judgment are the following. There's 13. Whether there be a future judgment, what is it? Who's the judge going to be? Where will he come from? What is the manner in which he will come? Who are the subjects of this judgment? What's the character of the sentence? What's the execution of the judgment to come? Who are the objects of this judgment? When will it take place? What are the reasons and why should we expect it? What are the reasons that God has left the time of it uncertain? Why has God deferred it? And should it be desired and looked for? And so first question, will there be a future judgment? Ursinus lists proofs of a future judgment. It says the dec declarations of scripture from Old New Testament touching this subject clearly and explicitly teach the doctrine of a future judgment from the decree of God by which he ordained and determined with himself from everlasting to raise the dead. From the, from the omnipotence of God by which he is able to accomplish things which were impossible in the judgment of reason. From the justice of God, which demands that it be well with the good and ill with the wicked, and that perfectly. From the end for which God created the human race, from the glory of God. Second question, what is the final judgment? He says there will be disclosure and revelation of all the thoughts and actions of men. There will be a separation between the righteous and wicked. This separation will be made by God himself. Sentence will also be pronounced. The execution will be eternal. The righteous and wicked will be judged according to the law and gospel, meaning they will be declared righteous or wicked at the tribunal of Christ. The righteous will be judged by the gospel as confirmed by fulfilling the law. The wicked by unfulfilling the law as confirmed by the gospel. Third question, who will be the judge? Christ, the same person who is mediator. And for these reasons, because the judge of men will require a visible judge, because it is the good pleasure of God that the same mediator should also glorify it, that we may have this comfort that this judge will be gracious to us, and it is proper on account of the justice of God. Fourth question, from where will he come? 
we expect Christ, our judge, to come from heaven in a cloud. Fifth question, in what manner will he come? He will come first truly, visibly and locally, and not imaginarily or apparently. He will descend in the same manner as he ascended into heaven. Sixth question, whom will he judge? He shall judge all men, the living as well as the dead, the righteous as well as the wicked. And when he says righteous and wicked, he doesn't mean in and of themselves they're good or bad people. He means as it relates to the law, who is righteous and wicked. Has the law been fulfilled or not fulfilled on their behalf? Seventh question, what the process, sentence, and execution of the final judgment will be. The dead shall be raised by the divine power in virtue of Christ and his voice calling forth. Christ will gather all, both righteous and wicked, to stand before the judgment seat. The word, the heavens, and earth shall be dissolved by fire. There will be a separation between the righteous and wicked and a sentence passed on each. There will then follow the perfect glorification of the righteous and the casting of the wicked into everlasting torments. Eighth question, why will there be a judgment? The chief cause of this judgment lies in the decree of God. Ninth question, when will the judgment take place? The future judgment will take place at the end of time or at the end of the world. Tenth question, the reasons why we should look for the judgment. Since it is not well for the righteous now, it will be then. God will have us know the certainty of a future judgment of our comfort, that we may keep ourselves in the fear of God, and that the wicked may be stripped of every excuse. Eleventh question, the reasons why God will have us ignorant of this precise time of the judgment. He's, here are the reasons that he may ex exercise our faith and expectation of the fulfillments of his promise, that he might restrain our curiosity, that he might keep us in fear to always be ready for the Lord to come, that the ungodly may not defer repentance. They will not be unprepared. It will not shock them. Twelfth question, why this judgment is deferred? It says, the Lord defers his coming so that he might exercise the godly in faith, that all the elect may be gathered into the church, that he may afford all time for repentance and render the wicked and disobedient without excuse. Thirteenth question, last one. Should we desire the last judgment? It should be looked for because there will be separation between wicked and righteous which the godly earnestly desire. Then he wraps this up. What then does the article mean? I believe in Christ who shall come to judge the quick and the dead. It means that Christ shall certainly come and his second coming shall renew the earth. That the very same Christ shall come who suffered, died, and rose again for us that he shall come visibly and gloriously to deliver his church, of which I and you are a member. 
and that he shall come to cast the wicked into everlasting punishment. Thank you for listening to Catechism Thursday, Lord's Day number 19. We went through question answers 50 to 52. And look out for Saturday's book club episode with Reverend Zach Keel of Escondido OPC. He's talking about his book, The Unfolding Word, published by Lexham Press. We will have a special giveaway at the end of that episode. Watch out for this episode. It is fantastic. Explains his book. You will want to go out and purchase this book for your own faith, for your own growth in the Word. And then Monday's episode with Dr. Tom Schreiner of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on his brand new commentary on the Epistles to the Hebrews. We'll talk about Hebrews, how you can understand this. Is it a sermon? Who is it written by? How do we find meaning in this really hard to understand book? So we'll see you guys next week on the Goat Grace Gratitude Podcast. Bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reformed theological truth. Please subscribe to us on your podcast catcher, review us, give us five stars, help others find this podcast through your review. Find us on Instagram and Twitter if you want to follow us there. Keep up with our updates and who we're interviewing next and a couple quotes that you guys might find really enriching. We hope to see you guys next week.